It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to be back with you this week. If we haven't met yet, uh, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm excited to teach today, excited to grow with you today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 5. We're still working through the book of Acts, and this passage today is one of the reasons I was excited to start charging through this this book. And so what I'm going to do is read one verse to kind of headline it. We'll read it again in context here in a moment. But in verse 41, Acts 5.41, it says, They, meaning the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They just got whooped almost to death, and they left with joy. They experienced a lot of suffering and trials because of gospel ministry. And listen, you'll never forget the first time you experience suffering for gospel ministry. You won't. It's this mixture of pain and sadness and fear, maybe a little anxiety, and a lot of excitement and exhilaration, all kind of mixed together, and it's hard to explain. But you'll know it. The first time you try to demonstrate the gospel or declare the gospel or both, you'll, you'll, it'll, suffering will splash back on you. You'll never forget it. I was talking to Mark and Sherry um, a couple nights ago about one of the very first times this happened to me back in 1997. I started a campus ministry and I did not know what I was doing. I was saved for like maybe 20 days. I shared a Gideon Bible with my roommate. He knew just as much as I did, which is absolutely nothing. And we were on this small campus with about 8,000 students. I didn't, I didn't finish college at the same place that I started. I finished at a much smaller school. And this school had zero campus ministries, 8,000 students, zero campus ministries. And we found out later on that we were the very first campus ministry in the school's history, right? And so I was excited about it. I was unprepared for the amount of blowback I would get, how immediately I would be mocked and ridiculed by my friends, by my peers, by professors, by administrators. I was just unprepared to to feel what it would feel like to lose a reputation I'd worked really hard on for years, worked hard on. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get applause. I didn't expect a lot of high fives from people, but I was a little jolted by the amount of mischaracterization, misquoting, being slandered, being dropped. I lost a lot of friends. But I grew really close to Jesus in those days. In fact, I think for every inch of reputational loss I had here, I, I felt like I gained a mile in the depth of relationship I had with Jesus. And ever since that day, I've learned a couple big things when it comes to gospel ministry. One is that you can, you, you can fully expect opposition to come, hard opposition. Second, you can expect a depth of joy to come. They come together. Those things carry together. This pain you get, the trials you get from gospel ministry and this new joy, and this newfound intimacy you get with Christ. They're inseparable. I mean, it's just a fact. The gospel ministry will provoke the enemy, and hostility will come, even at a supernatural level, which is why Paul felt it important to write to a small church in Ephesus, saying, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the friction that we feel when suffering in gospel ministry, it's supernatural. It's supernatural. And I knew that when I was working with my professors. I didn't know much, but I knew when my friends rejected me, when the administration leaned back against me, I knew a lot of that was supernatural. It wasn't them I'm fighting with. There's something bigger going on. But it's also natural. It's not just supernatural. It's natural. And this is what Peter says. And and I'm glad Peter said this because he's actually one of the central characters of our passage today. But after our passage, he writes his own letter. And in 1 Peter 4, he says this, beloved, meaning you, the church, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now, why is he writing this? because they felt like something strange was happening. <laughs> they, were, they were surprised. And why not? I mean, we're bringing the gospel to bear. It's good news. I mean, we thought it was good news. That's why we became Christians, you know? So we're bringing this good news to be helpful, to bring freedom to people that are all bound up, and all they're doing is just throwing jabs. All they're doing is just persecuting us. We're losing friends. We're losing reputational status. We're losing all kinds of things. Uh, I thought we were here to help. This is good news. Maybe we're doing it wrong. He says a little further, but rejoice, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So when we are shareholders in suffering, we become shareholders in gladness. They're connected. But does that sound a little sadistic, a little psychotic? I mean, I thought to to suffer was to feel pain. I thought to suffer was to feel sadness, not joy. I mean, just as a missionary, and I'm a missionary before I'm a pastor, just like you, I'm a Christian. If you're a Christian, you're a missionary. You might struggle at it. You might be grasping to be a better missionary, but we're all missionaries as those who love Jesus. And as a missionary, I'll tell you, I just want it to be a little easier. I want a life of gospel ministry where I have no enemies, where everybody loves me, where I'm adored and liked. Nobody rejects me, nobody spreads rumors, nobody loathes me. But I also want one where nobody disrupts my calendar, where nobody uh, disrupts my checkbook, my bank account. I want ministry, gospel ministry, to fit inside of convenient boxes that I could pull out and put back whenever I want. I want gospel ministry where I could flip the switch on and flip the switch off with no pain. That's what I want. Maybe you want this too. I want to be adored and I want to be comfortable. And you can actually do that, but it will build a church that is unhelpful. And it will build a church that is unhealthy as well. It won't build a church that turns the world upside down. A healthy church will take its beatings with joy, just as this church did. And why do we do it? Because our king did. He took lashes. He took a beating, and he did so with the joy set before him. In fact, he says so in John 15. Stay where you're at in Acts. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So when you are hated, you're in the right place. You're in the right place. That's normal. It's natural. And it's supernatural. Friction comes for those who minister in the gospel. Now here's my warning for many of us today. Without ministry suffering, 
Right? And now, now, I'm talking about a specific kind of suffering when I say ministry suffering. A few years ago, we did an entire series on different kinds of suffering and how we walk through suffering and probably should go through it again here in, in the near future. But when it comes to suffering, there's some suffering that comes to you just because it's a broken world, right? Bad knees and hurricanes. It's a broken world, broken stuff happens, right? Then there is suffering that you incur and you invite because you do stupid things, okay? And it just happens. Then there's also a suffering that happens that you invite by doing gospel ministry. And that's the specific kind of suffering I'm talking about today. Without this ministry suffering where you are expressing, demonstrating, and declaring the gospel, without that level of suffering, you will hit a low ceiling when it comes to intimacy with Jesus. You just won't grow. You'll never find a depth of joy, gladness, You won't mature. That's why some of us aren't growing. We hate the pain of suffering more than we want more God. The way into a meaningful relationship with Jesus, it oftentimes is through the doors of persecution and fiery trials. I mean, the most mature Christians I find, the most glad Christian hearts I find have been built in fiery trials of gospel ministry. I mean, Peter's statement here on fiery trials That's born of experience. He's got a lot of scar tissue by the time he wrote this. He'd had things thrown at him. He'd been beaten, as we're about to read about one of his beatings, the one of the many, I'm sure. This is not from an ivory tower. This is from a dungeon floor. That's where this came from. So let's just read about this passage to find out exactly what's happening to Peter. And, and, you know, when we get halfway through this book, Peter will start to kind of fade back into the distance a little bit, and Paul becomes more of the centerpiece of the book of Acts. But right now, this is going to be Peter being maybe the, um, the spokesman of the church. And so we're going to be in verse 12 of chapter 5. This is the word of the Lord for us today, and we're going to see Christ much more clearly through a passage even like this. It says this, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots. And mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priests rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Okay, let's just imagine a moment the scene maybe with all of our senses, just the disgusting nature of a scene like this, you've got people that have been hurt, sick, diseased, dying for a long time, screaming out, smelling, being broken. I mean, just imagine it. Imagine walking right by all of this when people are laying on a mat or maybe they've always lived their life on a cot, having to be carried everywhere with joints that have never really worked. Just begging, begging for attention, begging for healing. Imagine all of it, the, just the sight of it, the sound of it, the smell of it. 
And then mixed in with all of that, joyful worship. New declarations from new hearts. Radical new Christians. All happening at the same time. The, the worst of what you can see mixed in with the most beautiful of what you can see. All at the same time. What a spectacle. What an amazing sight this was. And the last time anyone had seen it was with Christ. Several months earlier, Matthew 4, it talks about how Jesus did this. It says, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and healed them. God heals people. God was healing people through Christ. He's healing people through his apostles. He heals people today. And maybe we could just talk about that for a minute. It's not, the main, it's not the main thrust of this passage, but it is, it's something we get questions on. Let me just say this. Sometimes God heals people outside of medicine. We would call it a miracle, right? Something is radically reversed in the biology or the chemistry or the physiology of somebody. It's a miracle. And sometimes God heals people through medical assistance as a grace given to mankind. But both are a gift of God. God's hand is invested in both. I'm saying that that we would be careful maybe not to divide God's healing into something that is godless healing like done through a medication and something that is God-centered healing because all healing has God's invested hand. He's attentive to all of it. I think this is important for us. We're a tiny church and we are loaded with physicians and nurses. It's just the way God has composed us. And when they bring healing to someone, whether it's a new knee or a new heart valve or a new prescription for contact lenses, they are in fact ministering in ways that are unattainable without God's grace. Impossible without God's grace. God's sovereign development of mankind drives us into not just scientific exploration, but scientific mastery. Mastery. We understand the optic nerve now. We understand somewhat how the heart works, how to repair a tendon, what, what gut sickness can look like. We, we know what ibuprofen is. We know how to make it. It's all sovereign. It's all God unpacking his creation in a way that is a good common grace to mankind. You see, science is on a leash and it serves the glory of God, not the other way around. Science is on the leash. And as we explore creation, God gives us a view of how to steward it. And that's why if you do a little bit of research, even a cursory glance, science's best pioneers and medical experts and physicians understand this truth, that medicine is a result of common grace. And common grace might be a new phrase for some of you. All it is is God being good and kind and thoughtful for people who don't even love him. And we get this in Matthew 5, verse 45. Stay where you're at. Where he says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God is good because he's good. God is good because he's good. Not because you're good, but because he's good. It's his character. It's who he is. And when he is good to us, it is a grace. Grace is his favor given to people who could never deserve it, who could never earn it. Just like rain falling on people who might cry out and fast and believe Jesus for, and rain falling on people who don't even believe in Christ. That is a common grace. We see other areas of common grace. Laughter, comfort, good food, the joy of a baby being born. These are all things that God is good to mankind commonly across the board. Healing can be like that. 
And I think one of my favorite parts about healing is that when God heals, either by medication or by miracle, we see a picture of what life will be like when the whole cosmos is healed, what I call forevermore. Now, in chapter 3, we looked at the congenital cripple, this guy sitting by the gate called Beautiful, never used his legs before, all curled up, and then he is healed by the, by the Spirit of God, and then he begins dancing and leaping on legs that he'd never used before, but they're brand new, right? And, and, and it's exciting, and we clap, and we praise God, but that's also a picture. It's a picture because here, th- that guy's legs, they're eventually going to get old and atrophy, and he'll be sitting in a chair once again someday when he's in his 80s or 90s or however long this guy lived. But he would be glorified as a Christian and he would have even better legs that would never age and never die and never perish. But that healing in that moment, in that distinct moment, was a picture, a glimpse where the veil is pulled back and you see just an echo of what forevermore will look like when the entire cosmos is made perfect and peaceable. I love that about healing. We just see, just for a moment, the effects of sin replaced by God's peace and his perfection. If you're on depression medication and you feel a little bit better, you have gut disorders and you have to take something to feel a little bit better, you have a a titanium hip joint or something that you can walk a little bit better, or maybe a miracle comes your way, what you see is a moment where perfection replaces brokenness. It's an image. It's a truth teller. And I think if we were to find some application in it before we pushed on out of this, let this inform how you pray for healing, this forevermore view. Let it it affect how you pray. You're not just looking for pain to go away. You're looking for a glimpse of the gospel of God, which means you should be eager to pray for healing for those who don't love Jesus. It's a beautiful moment. It's an opportunity to tell the story of a healer who came to a sick people to make them well, even though we destroyed him with our own hands. It tells the story of of God who created something beautiful to see us wreck it, to come and then to heal it, to glorify it, to redeem it. Be eager to pray for those who are far from Jesus to be healed. And when you pray for the healing of a Christian, the answer is always yes. It's always yes. Maybe you're healed now, or maybe you were healed when you were glorified, but you will be healed. Maybe it's by miracle, maybe it's by medicine, maybe it's when you see him face to face. Cripples dance now or they dance later, but they dance. Those who are depressed now, they shed off layers of that depression now in this world, or they are never to be depressed again in the next. But we do not carry the baggage from a broken world into forevermore. That we know about. And I love this. I love this aspect of seeing healings happen in the Bible. We're supposed to see this. We're supposed to see little glimpses and moments of what it will look like. I mean, just do an audit on your body. I did this exercise yesterday, a little less fun than I thought it would be, right? I'm thinking, what is wrong with my body? And here's this is why it's a hard exercise to go through, because you get so used to it, you don't even pay attention to it anymore. We just kind of acclimate to our injuries and our weird things. But I I thought, okay. What do I know to be wrong with my body? 
And there's a lot. I mean, this knee points out like five degrees this way. I don't know why. It's the way I was born. It goes out. My teeth are crooked. My eyesight's horrible. I get back pain sometimes in weird, in weird spots. I mean, there's all kinds of weird stuff with my body. Ear, ear hair, weird stuff, right? And the older I get, my list is getting longer and longer and longer. Had you caught me at 18, I'd have been like, what list? I'm perfect. There's nothing wrong with me. Well, now I've got a long list and it's going to get longer. But here's the thing. There will be a day where it's all gone. It's all gone. It's all reversed. Everything is made whole. Everything is at peace. And when you read the Gospels and you see moments like this, it is to draw your attention to that very fact. All right, I got to kick off of that. I do want to get back into the passage and show that there, I don't know if you saw this, there is an obvious lack of strategy here by the apostles. They obviously did not know what they were doing. They did not get the memo on how to start a movement because the wrong people are being healed right now. They didn't start with the kings and the entrepreneurial business leaders with these robust Instagram accounts. They didn't do that. They started with people that could not leave a cot, people that stunk, people with leprosy on their skin, people that couldn't see. That's what they started with. They began basically with the bottom feeders of culture. You see, what we're seeing is as a kingdom economy function much differently than our own economy today. The world today, when it wants to see traction, in an endeavor, whether it's a business or something like that, we will try to recruit notable and influential people to get the traction, which is why Matt Damon was selling crypto during the Super Bowl and not me. Nobody knows me. Nobody's going to buy crypto because I show up on the screen. I'm like, hey, buy Bitcoin. But if Jason Bourne tells you to buy Bitcoin, that guy's never wrong. He knows how many people are in the room and where the exits are and how he can kill you with like one half of a ballpoint pen, right? If he says buy crypto, you're going to buy crypto. That's why they do it. He's influential. That's the world's economy. Whenever we want to sell or build something, it's an arms race to get the biggest names. We do see moments, in fairness, where we see some top-down missional momentum. Lydia, I think. I think she was an influential business person. I think she had a lot of influence. Uh, uh, some people say Paul. I would make the argument he lost all of his influence when he became a Christian. But I'd probably put Barnabas in there. I mean, if we worked really hard, we could probably find two or three more people that would have some notoriety about them. But the majority of the church was built on the backs of insignificant and easily forgettable people, which is why you don't know their names but you will worship next to them one day, side by side. Those who used to be addicts and abusers, minimum wagers, murderers and adulterers, those who were crippled, possessed, those who had mental disorders, emotional trauma, a past, that's what filled the church. That's what built the church. That's what it ended up leading the church. And this is what I love about this the further people are away from an idyllic life, the further they are away, the more the gospel is illustrated when joy comes. It's super cool. I think this is one of the reasons we see Jesus saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. The bigger the tears coming from people's face, the, the deeper the lines are carved in their face from pain. That much more, the gospel brings joy and song and gladness to the hearts of the broken. Because let's face it, this is a hard life. This is a hard life. 
And those who struggle much will sing much. This is just a picture of it. And this got big attention too, by the way. The spectacle, the singing, the crying out, the worship, the pain. All of this is getting big attention. The church is growing, and yet, did you catch it? Nobody wanted to join at the same time. Interesting how it's expanding and not expanding. It's a mixture of awestruck reserve and awestruck commitment. And this is also very natural and very normal. In fact, Paul speaks directly to this in 2 Corinthians 2. He says, for we, meaning the church, meaning legacy, meaning you, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. You smell like something. We image something. And, and this is why these guys could preach the gospel and some would hear it and leave their madness behind. And yet some would hear the exact same gospel and they would get more mad. Well, let's look and see what that looks like because that happens right now. Let's look at verse 19. It goes on to say, But during the night an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Okay, hey, quickly, right? Not, not going to preach on this. I think it's ironic that he's about to talk to people that don't believe in angels. <laughs> the Sadducees don't believe in angels, and yet an angel's the one that lets them out of jail. Hey, how'd you get out of jail? They're going to say, an angel. An angel came and got us. Okay, no, really. Tell the truth this time. How did you get out of jail? An angel, a little bit bigger than me, glowed a little bit. He let me out of jail. I'm here. I'm talking to you. So your Bible's funny. Um, And then it says, now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the sin of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. And so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. (laughs) Okay. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, They were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, and yet... Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sin. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Okay, they were enraged. Not because people were being healed. That would be goofy. They were enraged because Peter had placed guilt at their feet. You guys did this. You guys killed him. You're guilty. They're they're doing gospel ministry right here, and it enraged them. They couldn't deal with it. They flipped their lids. And I think one of the things we see here is a brilliant picture of civil disobedience, okay? We've talked about this a little bit in the middle of the pandemic, 
It's a good, it's a good opportunity to talk about it again. We'll see it more in the book of Acts. Again, it will be Paul doing this same or similar thing, not Peter so much, but this is a good time to talk about it. Because it's an important detail, it's an important thing for the persecuted church today, and it actually became a guide for us during COVID. When the mandates started rolling and laws were being passed down and new rules were coming out day by day, we would have to ask the question as a team of elders, does this forbid what God has called us to do, or does it call us to do what God has forbidden? That's the key question for us as church leaders and for you as a Christian. And that can get tricky, as you can imagine, right? But Peter speaks to this. Not only does he show us in this passage, later on after this passage, when he's an older man and he's been beat up a little bit more and he's staring death in the face, he says this in 1 Peter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Translation, we obey laws and codes and statutes and mandates. We follow the guidance of our governing authorities, even when they're ridiculous even when they don't love Jesus, even when they're corrupt, even when we didn't vote for them. I know this sounds super un-American. It's not the most red, white, and blue passage we have in our Bible, but Peter is speaking to a people just like us, just like us, who rebel against authorities because we want to, simply because we want to. We are being called here to obey authorities. Let me say this again, just to be unmistakably clear. We are being called to obey authorities. But, but there are moments where we should not obey. There are moments where in kind words, we tell the authorities to go kick rocks because we're going to stand firm and we're not going to do it. Okay? I mean, just consider the word mandate. That's a word we're, we're a bit all tired of, right? Mandated speech, masks, mandated vaccines, mandated pronouns, mandated curriculum, mandated, mandated. We, in general, we don't like being told what to do, just in general. That gets more inflamed and infected when we don't like the person that's telling us. Then it's more difficult, which is where not my president comes around. Not my president is catchy. It's just not very Christian, Right? I don't agree with everything our authorities decree. I'm just like you. I just have a long list just like you. But unless I'm being ushered against God, I follow Paul, Peter's model here because Peter is following Christ's model here, right? When we're forbidden to follow God or required to do what God forbids, we stand firm. Now, you can see that this requires a lot of wisdom, and it requires staying above reproach. I want you to notice what Peter's not doing. He's not throwing a brick through a window, right? He's not starting to set things on fire. He's not being inflammatory on social media or something like that. He's not just disre- disrespecting people. I think the church could be very cringy at this point. The church doesn't do a great job. So I want you to just pay attention to who is saying this. It's not Luke saying this. This is Peter, with the Holy Spirit of God, the same Peter that was beaten with sticks and whips and thrown repeatedly in prison and eventually martyred. He is the one that is saying this. I think it's important. I think it's important. Look at verse 34. 
And we'll continue. It says, but a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. Remember, they wanted to kill them. That's where they're headed. For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it'll fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Okay. They took their beating with joy. This is how we win. This is how we win. And this is how we win with a glad heart. This beating that they took, most scholars, by the way the word is rendered, believe it to be the classic beating that is the 40 minus 1. 40 lashes minus 1. I don't think it was 39 lashes. I don't think they counted out 39 lashes. The idea is one more would kill you. So they beat you all the way up to death without killing you. It's the kind of beating that was doled out when you're trying to make a point. Do this no longer. You're definitely not walking out of there upright not throwing a shirt back on or anything like that. And this is why they rejoiced. They were able to share something with Jesus. Share something real with Jesus. And you, by the way. In you, when you suffer in gospel ministry for the namesake, you share something with them across the ages and across the oceans. And you share something with Jesus. Gospel suffering is communal. It's a communal suffering. We share it with Christ and his people across the ages, across the nations. This is what it says in Revelation 12. And they have conquered, these are martyrs, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, that's their salvation, what Jesus has done, and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. I've shared some things with these martyrs. I haven't shared death, not yet anyway, but I've shared scorn, I've lost money, I've lost reputation. I've shared some things with these men and women and I've shared them with Christ. You see, shared pain pulls hearts together. It builds intimacy. In fact, I would argue it builds an intimacy that is impossible to build otherwise. I mean, I have an intimacy with my wife that was not built on the backs of laughter in times of peace, but also built in times of trial fiery trials, long suffering, years long sometimes, and it pulls our hearts together. I've bled with some of you and bonded with some of you. Congruent suffering, it pulls hearts together. We see the same thing with war vets. 
ex-addicts, people who have suffered tragedies together. Anytime people are suffering in the same direction, there's intimacy that will be built, and, and you know this, which is why when you've been around people that you've suffered with, you feel known, and you intuitively know them well. You almost don't even have to finish your sentences. You just get something. It's almost like you get something that doesn't have to be explained. And when you suffer for gospel ministry, you are sharing that suffering with Christ himself. As if he was standing there saying, I get it, man, I've been there. He's sharing a moment with him. He's sharing it with you. Both vertically and horizontally, it is communal. This is one of the big reasons we believe missional communities are valuable. It's why we put so much stake and stock in those because we believe that gospel ministry suffering, whenever you're suffering, even in your missional community, when you're trying to do something beautiful and there's blowback, fiery trials splash all over you, you're inconvenienced, whatever it is, you lose your weekend, however you want to put it in there and say, I'm suffering for this, you're doing it together and it pulls you tighter as a community. If you want more Jesus, suffering is a part of that journey. That this deeper intimacy will build a deeper gladness, a deeper joy. They took their beating with glad hearts because they got more God. They just got more God. And if that sounds odd to you, this idea of more Jesus at all costs, you've probably already hit your limit on joy and gladness in Christ. You probably have hit as much maturity as you're going to get. Avoiding persecution, that's not helping you, it's starving you, it's robbing you. I mean, you might ask God to show more of himself, to share more of himself, to know him more. You need to know that one of his primary tools for building that deep relationship is gospel ministry suffering. That's where it's at. It's a big strategy for him. And we all have our various 21st century versions of the 40 minus 1, don't we? I mean, I'm, I'm not positive lashes aren't coming in our generation. Maybe they will. But likely our lashes today, our beatings, will be more societal shame than it will be whips in prison. That's my guess at this point. So just think about that. When somebody dogs you online for your faith, you are sharing to some degree. You're sharing this moment with Christ who was dogged, who was bad-mouthed, who was mocked, who was lied about. You're sharing this moment with Peter and his disciples who were beat, who lost money, who lost possessions. It's a communal sharing. When you lose friends and you get some reputation for being a bigot or a homophobe or phobic of something, you are in some way sharing that moment with Christ himself. Walking in the same path is Jesus himself. When you have your assets frozen or taken or lose your weekend or lose your convenience, you are sharing that moment. This is how we win. And this is how we win with glad hearts. As shareholders in suffering, we become shareholders in gladness. And what's cool is the next chapter begins with how they're increasing in number. They're blowing up as a church, right? And people are awestruck that more God is better than no beatings. That's pretty, I'd get my attention. Where does this passage confront you the most? It confronts me up and down. I've already said, I want peace here. I want to be liked. I don't want anyone to not like me. I want to be adored and I want to be comfortable, just like you. 
right? But what that really is saying is that Jesus is not satisfying enough for me. So I need this world to satisfy me. The, the more God is not enough. I need more of other things. The God is not really good. I need to find good elsewhere. God simply is not enough. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm really saying, even though I'm not saying it, that I need this world, which is just a vapor, to really satisfy me and make my heart glad, to make me sing. But what I know is that what I do today shapes who I become tomorrow, just like you. What you do today shapes what you become tomorrow. We're becoming something new and different every day. And the path we're on is a big part of shaping who we are. The small lashes I take today allow me to take the 40 minus 1 tomorrow. The reputational loss today for things that I say, don't say, it will help me stand firm tomorrow. But where are you feeling this the most? Like, where, where would this confront you the most? Maybe you have an opportunity for gospel ministry, yet there's this cloud, this hanging promise that as soon as you declare, as soon as you demonstrate, it's going to blow all back on you. There will be suffering to be had. Or, if we were to pivot, where has civil disobedience been just disobedience for you? Where has it just been just disobedience? In other words, where are you more American than Christian? Because, friends, we have a world to turn upside down, starting with this beautiful city. And the question is, is can we build a church made up of people that the world has called bottom feeders and discards and those who are not worthy and maybe disciple them to obey when it is hard and minister when it gets even harder. Because if that's the church we want, it requires us doing it first. It requires us doing it first. Again, Revelation 12, it says, and they have conquered him, that's the enemy, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Well, listen, they started somewhere. They started somewhere. The loss was probably small in the beginning. They didn't get there overnight. See, we have this opportunity to repent of a love for this world and its comfort and the reputation more than gospel ministry. It's, it's a point of repentance for us that we would say Jesus is not satisfying enough. I need things here to make me more satisfied. And listen, if you're watching online or you're here and you would say, well, Luke, I don't even love Jesus. I'm not even sure if I love Jesus. I don't think I do. Let me just say that there is a gladness that is unexplored for you. I mean, your soul was actually created to hold a satisfaction that's very deep but that can only come from Jesus. And so what you've done with your life is you've tried to fill it and you have this yearning that you cannot shake. You endlessly try to fill this satisfy, this need. But it was built for Christ, and that's why you've been unable to do it. So I would just usher you to and submit that you turn from a life where you are the center of orbit, where everything spins around you, and maybe step into a life where Christ becomes the centerpiece of your new universe, and you orbit him. And this suffering of loss, I'm telling you, will be outmatched by the gain of more God, more God, more God.